and take a look. Yeah, let's do it. Go, you can make a right. Make a right onto the unpaved. Yeah. Sorry, guys. No, it's okay. And uh, the thing that I remember doing here is if you just put your windows down, consider what you hear. And don't hear nothing. Yeah, it's. You're listening to a recording I made in December of 2020 in the midst of a global pandemic. I've gotten together with a few friends to go to a place I haven't been for a decade. It's a town in north-central Pennsylvania called Centralia. Maybe you've heard of it. Mindfire started there in 1962 and hasn't stopped since. When did you first learn about this place, Phil? I as learned a kid. I learned about it as a kid as a sort of like almost like a urban legend or a ghost story uh, and you know people would talk about it in, in school like oh have you heard about the town it's completely abandoned and there's the mine fire it's like burning all the time and uh, the town is long since abandoned but you can still see the old street grid laid out like a graveyard fissures in the earth where carbon monoxide and other gases shoot through and a long abandoned stretch of highway 61 lonely and wild, covered with decades of graffiti and mounds of dirt. It feels like being on the moon, or on an abandoned replica of the moon on Earth. It's wild. It really was. Like, it's, it's, it's what you want in a ghost town, you know? What is that? Color. You know? There's something about standing on an abandoned highway that feels like a transgression. You're seeing something you're not supposed to see. A remnant of a past that's meant to be invisible. There's no foundations for the houses that once stood in Centralia. It's as if they want to erase the fact that the town once stood at all. Erased by the very material forces that produced it. That's the thing, it's the weirdest thing to be in a... In a if you're in an abandoned place, the weirdest thing is when you see other people and you're like, well, why are you also in this abandoned place? This is only for me. <laughs> We've traveled far and wide. But you have an abandoned place and you have a sense uh, you shouldn't be there. Um, and so you're always sort of suspecting that someone is watching you because you have a sort of intuitive moral sense that there's something wrong about being there. If you're listening to this, there's a pretty good chance you're on the road right now. Maybe you're even on a long road trip. Maybe you were looking for a way to pass the long stretches of highway, across bridges, through tunnels, toll booths, interchanges, rest stops, gas stations, diners, hotels, and the occasional tourist trap. But wherever you are, you're probably not thinking about what's underneath you. You're probably not thinking about the road itself. Every year, millions of Americans gas up and get on the highway, and they're also not thinking about what's underneath them. They tend not to ask questions about why the highway leads to one town and not another, why a road bisects a city through this neighborhood, not that one. And despite annual reports from the American Road and Transportation Builders Association revealing the dismal condition of our interstate highway bridges, one out of every three of which needs repair, they don't tend to think about whether the bridges they cross or the tunnels they hurdle through are safe. Infrastructure is all around us, ready-made for us to forget. If you watch horror movies, you'll probably be familiar with the scene. The poor unfortunate soul is searching a darkened house, 
cautiously taking each step forward without knowing the killer is right behind them, or forgetting that they've left the door or window ajar. Or maybe they bought the house sight unseen, unaware it was built on top of a graveyard, a cursed place, or some site of unfathomable psychic trauma. We find the same situation in a completely different genre, the familiar gag from Chuck Jones's Roadrunner cartoons, where the coyote chasing the Roadrunner runs through the air for a minute before realizing he's hovering over an abyss. Only when he realizes this does he fall. In other words, what you take for granted is your undoing. That's what infrastructure is. It's what you take for granted. The prefix infra means under. But what if the problem with infrastructure wasn't just what it failed to do, but what it was designed to do? What if there was something darker, more malevolent, at the heart of the American open road? If infrastructure is the stuff that no one notices, what happens when you look at it from below, up close? What might you find? What might be lurking there when you turn off at the last exit? Passage by Congress of the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956. The national system of interstate and defense highways got underway. What is this big road? Where is it going? How much has been built? How much is yet to come? come, 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 come. You're listening to The Last Exit. It's a podcast about the occult history of American infrastructure. I'm Phil Rocco. And I'm David Reinecke. This is the tale of the Black Dog. You can be forgiven for missing something that's right in front of you. That is, as long as no one gets hurt. There are 3.5 million truckers in the United States. They drive through the night in all kinds of weather, often for low pay and in increasingly abysmal working conditions. If you notice them, it's probably as an annoyance while driving. But they're the reason the shelves of your local supermarket remain stocked. The engine of capitalism is, after all, more than a symbol. It's a description. The U.S. relies primarily on trucking to move goods to market. Every shipper can load and receive materials by truck. Rail, on the other hand, requires that both the shipper and the consignee have the ability to load and unload rail directly. Air is primarily used for perishables and express shipments, so the highway you're on right now may get you from place to place, but it was built for the work that truckers do. But you can be forgiven for forgetting that, maybe. When I pulled out of Pittsburgh or rolling down that eastern seaboard, I got my diesel wound up and she's a running like I never before. There's a speed on the head, well, all right. I don't see a cop in sight. Six days on the road and I'm gonna make it home. In the films of the 1940s, truckers were played by the likes of Humphrey Bogart. 
1977, Smokey and the Bandit, the freewheeling tale about truckers getting 400 cases of cores from Texarkana to Atlanta, was the third highest grossing film of the year. Trucking was the subject of pop songs like Six Days on the Road and Willin'. Teamsters president Jimmy Hoffa remained a household name long after his disappearance in 1975, which generated a cottage industry of speculation. Trucking was commonly depicted as an industry of anti-authoritarian wanderers, workers with an uncommon control over the choke points of the American economy, capable of banding together to defend themselves against the boss. He's an honest trucker who won't make deals. I mean, I don't haul that stuff, I don't drive, huh? That's right, just keep your mouth shut and do as you're told. As the tagline of one movie put it, the title character had a CB radio and a hundred friends who just might get mad. Yet the figure of the trucker, like many working-class heroes, has all but disappeared from American culture. The most widely seen trucking movie of the 1980s was Maximum Overdrive, in which an alien life force takes over semis, killing scores of drivers. Ice Road Truckers, the contemporary reality TV show, has less to do with the experience of most on the road and more to do with the extreme environment of remote Alaska and Canada. Nevertheless, truckers have a rich cultural tradition of their own. The sun never sets on the languages spoken by the American truck driver, John McPhee once said, after spending months in a semi. There are also stories and legends that go back to the beginnings of the industry itself. You probably know the scene in the movie Pee-wee's Big Adventure where Pee-wee is hitchhiking at night and given a ride by the trucker named Large Marge. Large Marge sent me. Did you say Large Marge? She just dropped me off. That's impossible. Large Marge? She's... It was ten years ago, on a night just like tonight. Tonight's the anniversary. That story goes back decades and was probably best popularized in Red Sovine's minor 1967 country hit, Phantom 309. And if you search for a bit on trucker forums, you're sure to find The Legend of the Black Dog. In it, a truck driver on a long haul starts to fall asleep at the wheel. That's when the black dog appears. A spectral, ghoulish creature, sometimes depicted with red eyes and huge, sharp teeth. Frightened by the apparition, the driver veers off the road, causing an accident, often resulting in death. It's actually hard to say where this legend starts. The image of the black dog appears in Goethe's Faust, where Mephistopheles first appears as a poodle. I've read some accounts that trace the ghost to couriers on roads in ancient Egypt, but it's probably best immortalized in the 1998 film Black Dog, starring Patrick Swayze and Meatloaf. What dog? The Black Dog. You mean like the Led Zeppelin song? No, Cruz knows what I'm talking about, don't you? I've heard truckers talk about it on the yard. They say it comes when you've been on the road too long and pushing too hard. When you get greedy, they say it comes to take everything away from you. And it did. It's 
one of David's favorites. All right, so Black Dog, yeah. you you love this movie. Love this movie. <laughs> it's one of these films that you watch late at night. You're not really sure the next morning. Did you actually watch it? Did you actually see it? Did you actually see this movie with Patrick Swayze and Randy Travis driving trucks? It's like a Saturday afternoon classic, right? It's it's an action. It's definitely that so bad it's good. Okay. Sweet spot that you're looking for. So and it's and it's like. It's a it's a trucker movie. It's got some thrills, but is also is there like a touch of the supernatural in it as well? Or well, this is a, what I found interesting about the movie is that as we dug a little deeper into the history, uh, it turns out that some of the crew members on set um, claimed the Black Dog Curse actually found its way uh, onto the set. Oh, uh, so like a Macbeth sort of thing. That's right. Apparently, the movie was played with problems from the beginning. Um, in the first month of production. One of the leads, Kevin Sorbo, of, Her- Hercules? of Hercules fame, apparently suffered an aneurysm and had to pull out. Oh my God! I know. So we we miss the Kevin Sorbo. Yeah. What would have been? What would the counterfactual have been? <laughs> instead, we got a, a, a late late career Swayze. Um, yeah, that same month, some unknown van slammed into the first unit's process trailer, uh, which is the thing you use to haul a car during driving oh, shots. Okay. Okay. Right. Members of the first unit crew were injured so badly in the crash. That production shut down for a month. What? So this is like it's real. When, this when, is when this get, is real. When you get greedy. Okay. That's all when, right. That's all when right. The black right. dog comes out. Uh, so. Towards the end of production, crew members were burned in a freak accident when an explosion detonated underneath a big rig just prior to a safety meeting. Serious. Yeah. One of them eventually died from the burns. Wow. God, this is like this is getting more now, and I, more brutal. Here. I, I feel I feel guilty for actually liking this film. You know, once I it's, found out what I yeah, did. this is like this seems like more than the average sort of amount of uh, chaos that, that that visits a Hollywood action movie. It's true. You know, and then David tells me there's this: the black dog itself seems to have showed up. Apparently, a PA and a props guy were driving from their hotel to the set on this cold, rainy morning. It was apparently so damp out that moisture condensed on the inside of their windshield. And in the words of one of the crew members, they began to see this form through the fog. Form which began to assume the shape of an enormous hound, totally black, coming before them, before disappearing in some underbrush on the other side of the road. The black dog isn't just the stuff of movies and legends. It is, from what I can tell, pretty real. I've read dozens of accounts of drivers late at night getting tunnel vision, seeing shadows on the sides of the road running alongside the truck. One driver making the trip from Camp Pendleton to 29 Palms near Joshua Tree saw an apparition of a white horse running down the road before slamming on the brakes. The more you read, a pattern emerges. The black dog is a way of describing a very real phenomenon sometimes called highway hypnosis or white line fever. It's a perceptual illusion induced by traveling long distances. It was first widely recognized in the 1920s in a study called Sleeping with the Eyes Open. The black dog is the kind of thing that fascinates Jordan Bim. He's a historian at the University of Chicago. The subset of any of... um like the deleterious effects of doing any sort of technical but monotonous task for long periods of time. And this was studied in the early Cold War by aviation medicine psychologists uh, within the U.S. Air Force that I study. So they would have uh, people look at like a radar screen for like eight 
10, 12 hours and have them record their subjective experiences. And what a lot they found is that a lot of them had sort of hallucination experiences where they'd see a hippopotamus on the screen or um, the little dials would start dripping uh, down to the floor and stuff like that. So definitely um, is a subclass. The black dog myth is a subclass of this sort of like uh, shared sort of warning or fear of a, of a dangerous hallucination shared amongst a certain class of workers. Uh, when, you, when you are forced to you know, watch the road for 12 hours or uh, monitor a radar screen for 12 hours, you're being deprived of sensory input. And uh, there's a certain human need for a, diverse, a diversity of sensory inputs uh, to not fall into sort of a fatigued state um, and to begin to be able to um, not only fall asleep, but also become less proficient in the technical tasks that you're trying to accomplish. So you see like a degradation in accuracy if a person's job is to monitor an automatic system or something like that. So you just, you become less proficient at normal tasks and then the body itself eventually just, just switches off, shuts down. The more I read forums online, the more I'm fascinated by how the black dog phenomenon is commonly understood. In the movie, it's almost described as a function of truckers' individual greed, as some sort of cosmic punishment for trying to make a quick buck. In one online forum, someone named Julie put it this way, running hard, getting down the road quick, bought us a house outright, and put away a nice nest egg for the kids' college fund. The rest we left in God's hands. We got greedy. And thank God we quit when we did. But trucking accidents probably owe far more to the structure of the industry itself, which forces drivers into making a gruesome choice. Your money or your life. In 2019, trucking industry fatalities were the highest they've been in more than 30 years. To understand why, you only need to look at how the industry has changed since 1980. Before 1980, the Interstate Commerce Commission defined trucking in the U.S. It's actually mentioned by name in pop songs about trucking. The ICC limited the number of trucks and set rates for hauling, and the Teamsters organized and bargained on behalf of most truckers who had wages and benefit packages similar to those of auto workers. The task of distributing foods, merchandise, and other materials necessary for life in towns and cities is performed by many kinds of trucks. The importance of this means of transportation has been made clear by the sudden interruption of such service. A city without trucks soon becomes in dire need. But all that changed when Congress passed the 1980 Motor Carrier Act, which deregulated the trucking industry, one of the most significant changes in the American economy in the latter half of the 20th century. Now, I'm sure that when I say deregulation, you're expecting an audio clip of Ronald Reagan or maybe Milton Friedman. But trucking deregulation wasn't like that. It was hailed by liberals like Senator Ted Kennedy and Ralph Nader, who pushed for changes to lower rates for consumers and bust up cartels. Jimmy Carter, Reagan's predecessor, made deregulation a priority as early as his 1978 State of the Union. ...of unnecessary federal regulations by which government too often interferes in our personal lives and our personal business. Soon, large shippers pushed Congress to end the rate-setting and route planning, which drove up the cost of getting goods to market. Civil rights organizations argued that deregulation would lower barriers that impeded African Americans from gaining a fair share of decent trucking jobs. But deregulation and the dismantling of the ICC changed the industry forever. New companies entered the market. They hired non-union drivers. Established companies, many of which continued to use union labor, eventually went out of business. 
The firms that lasted adopted a new business model. They sold all or most of their trucks to drivers who were inappropriately reclassified as independent contractors. Companies no longer had the responsibility for paying workmen's compensation, social security, health care, or unemployment. But while truckers lost their protections, they weren't really independent contractors at all. In 2008, a group of truck drivers alleged that FedEx forced them to buy their trucks from a designated supplier, paint the trucks with the FedEx logo, buy repair services from FedEx, and park their trucks for a fee on FedEx property. The IRS fined the company for misclassifying workers, but the charade continues. Work under the deregulated system is brutal, and is rightfully called, as one book does, a network of sweatshops on wheels. Drivers are on the job five days a week, from 10 to 12 hours a day, earning an average income of $28,000 per year. Companies pay by the mile, so some workers earn as little as half of the federal minimum wage if we calculate their wages by the hours worked instead of the miles driven. No health care, no retirement, and when the price of gas goes up, it's the truckers who pay. If they get in an accident, they may find that their load isn't insured even though their company has charged them for the insurance. Truckers inhale diesel exhaust all day long, which can lead to chronic health conditions and eventually death. And since they're paid by the load rather than the hour, they're often waiting without pay for hours on end before heading out onto congested highways. More than half of surveyed New Jersey truck drivers reported that they suffered from stress. Almost a fifth reported high blood pressure. They also complained of back pain and knee pain, lack of sleep, hemorrhoids, hearing loss, kidney problems, and chronic headaches. In one 2008 study, American long-haul truckers averaged 4.78 hours of verified sleep per day over a five-day period. Federal hours of service regulations are supposed to prevent sleep-related accidents. The rules prohibit driving a property-carrying truck more than 11 hours or driving after having been on duty for 14 hours. After completing an 11- to 14-hour on-duty period, the driver must be allowed 10 hours off-duty. But trucking companies often knowingly ignore hours of service rules, and some even encourage truckers to violate the rules as a means of cutting costs and staying competitive. The emergence of electronic logbooks has helped improve enforcement of hour regulations in recent years, but a 2019 international road check conducted by Canadian and U.S. inspectors still identified hours of service as the top reason for driver violations. The black dog and its analogs are a manifestation of trucking's cruel political economy. There are, of course, other horrors on the road. The case of Alphonse Madden is just one example. Madden was running on fumes one frigid January night in 2009 when his company, Kansas City's Trans Am, gave him confusing directions about where to refuel. He pulled over to the side of the road and soon after found the brakes on his trailer had frozen in the negative 33 degrees temperature. While waiting for a repairman who never came, he fell asleep and woke up three hours later with no feeling in his legs, hypothermia. He called Trans Am again and was given two choices, drive away, dragging the trailer, or sit tight. Madden unhitched his cab and drove to the nearest gas station. After delivering his load, he was promptly fired. He sued the company and eventually won over the vigorous dissent of then 10th Circuit Court Judge Neil Gorsuch. 
that fair came up during Gorsuch's Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Like on the interstate, say you're going 75 miles an hour, someone's going 75 miles an hour, they come over a hill and slam into that trailer. Also, he's got hypothermia. He's a little woozy. Probably figures that's not too safe. I don't think you'd want to be on the road with him, would you, Judge? Senator, um, uh, you would uh, or not? I, I, it's, a, I, it's a really easy yes or no. Would, I want to would you like the, to be on the would road I would with him? Want to be on the road with him? Yeah, uh, with the hitched trailer or the unhitched trailer, Senator. Well, either, but especially well, with the hitched trailer. With the locked brakes? No, I, I don't think that okay, was a serious option. Okay, I thought that was, I, I wouldn't yes. want to be there either. Uh, yeah. During the COVID-19 pandemic, American highways are now routinely studded with signs saying, thank you, truck drivers. But beneath the veneer of national pride, things have only gotten worse. We couldn't get hand sanitizer. We couldn't get masks. We couldn't get good information from the government. We had, I mean, and think about this. At a time when they needed us the most, they shut down rest areas that were we need these because we're required by their version to stop and rest. We didn't have places to eat. We didn't have facilities to go to the bathroom. I mean, we were treated, we were treated horribly. Some of these guys could be in their driveway. The Trump administration eased hours of service rules, extending the maximum working day for short-haul drivers from 12 to 14 hours. The Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration noted that this change would allow truckers to make more deliveries. For long-haul drivers, the administration will let work other than driving, such as loading or unloading, filling out paperwork, or communicating with an employer or customer, count towards a mandatory 30-minute break after eight hours of driving. Currently, drivers must go off-duty during breaks. Surveying the landscape of trucking regulations and the practices of unscrupulous logistics companies, you really get the clear sense that firms view truck drivers as an annoyance something they'd like to automate away. And in a way, they're already trying to do that. Trucking companies already use artificial intelligence to automate some of truckers' tasks. And rather than regulating to improve the conditions of truckers and sacrificing corporate profits, legislative reformers have pushed for greater electronic monitoring and metering of truck drivers' performance. New electronic logging devices, or ELDs, monitor truckers' speed their location, and their driving schedules, reporting all of the information back to the employer. As Cornell University's Karen Levy has written, this has led to concerns about even more intrusive monitoring of truckers' cabs, which serve as both their homes and workplaces. But what's key here is the auxiliary features that are bundled with that technology, right? And it's those auxiliary features that truckers' employers um, are very interested in because they're also very interested in monitoring their employees, right? So in a way, it's as if the government said, okay, everybody has to buy a cell phone that makes calls, right? But you guys all know, you can't really just buy a cell phone that makes calls. Basically, all the cell phones on the market make calls and then some. And so what is the and then some for EOBR as well? In addition to monitoring when the truck is driving, they'll also monitor things like when the driver brakes hard, how fast he's going at any given moment, um, if he changes lanes without signaling, what his fuel efficiency is, if he leaves a pre-specified route, right? It'll send all of that information back in real time to the driver's employer, and it'll allow the employer to construct a scorecard 
which can then be used to rank the driver alongside his coworkers. Uh, sometimes companies will attach a small financial incentive to good performance, or they'll just even so simply post uh, the scores up in a common area so drivers can feel, um, can get a sense for where they are as compared to uh, their coworkers. An industry that mistreats its workers, forcing them to bear the cost and risk of their boss's inefficiency. Legislation that attempts to address inherent vice by creating technologies that only subject drivers to more surveillance and control. This is all a far distance from the romance of American trucking and even the haunted lore of the black dog legend. The horror, when glimpsed at last, has less to do with the unique history of the truck driving trade. Instead, it's a story about changes in the American economy that allow for the concentration of power and the individuation of risk. And consumers are implicated too, as passive participants in an illusion. The illusion that we have to choose between fair prices and fair labor practices, between goods delivered when we want and the lives of the people who do the work. It is, among other things, a problem of perception. Not a black dog, but a black veil that separates the parts of the economy where work is actually done from the spaces where the fruits of work are enjoyed. You can be forgiven for failing to see what is directly in front of you, but you do so at your own risk. The Last Exit is hosted by me, Phil Rocco, and David Reinecke, who also writes and performs our theme music. Special thanks to Jordan Bim, and thanks to truckers everywhere. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.